Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5, again verses 38 to 48. And, and so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been taught uh, a couple things. We've been taught who we are and who we're becoming uh, through the Beatitudes in verses 2 through 12. We were called the salt of the earth and the light of the world in verses 13 through 16. And then in verses 21, um, oh, Christ declared that he'd come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in verses 17 through 20. And we'll skip those. And then verses 21 through 48, Jesus proceeded to give six examples of how uh, the religious leaders to, uh, prior to and in leadership at that time when he was uh, in uh, the ministry in his life, how they had twisted and manipulated the law, God's law, in selfish, self-centered, and sinful ways. And in these six examples, Jesus shares uh, what the people had been falsely taught about God's law and then gives the truth. So he shares with them what they had been taught, which was false, and then he shares with them the truth, the spirit of the law, that God had communicated to his people all along. And just as a reminder, as we wrap up Matthew 5 this morning, Jesus uses this formula for each example. The first part is, you have heard, or you have heard that it was said, and, and that portion is, this is, Jesus is saying, this is what they've been teaching you. This is what you've been taught. And then he says, but I say to you, and in those portions, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, is rightly dividing the Word of God, accurately communicating the spirit of the law. And so it's good for us to remember, these are not new rules, these are not new commands. Instead, these explanations and these illustrations are Jesus' teaching in order to illumine, illuminate the truth of the law, the spirit of the law that had been there all along. Jesus isn't teaching new commands. He's reminding the people of what the law really always did communicate, what it always said. Today we're looking at examples 5 and 6. And the heading, headings in my Bible calls number 5, retaliation. That portion is retaliation number 6, loving your enemies. As we go through these uh, two examples today, and as we see how the law had been twisted and what God had truly intended... We're going to be looking for a common thread uh, so that hopefully by the end of this message, we can see what the big picture need is for us, what we really need to learn, what we could really uh, be growing in uh, so that we might grow and rightly apply this scripture in our lives. So example number five, verse 38, it says this, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And these words were definitely found in the law. This is in the law. This saying is found in Exodus 21, 24, uh, also Leviticus 24, 20, and in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. And its formal name is called the Lex Talionis, or the Law of Retaliation. And it was actually, actually an internationally held uh, ancient legal code. This isn't the first time that it would have been put in writing. Uh, in the Old Testament. As far as we have record, it's found first in the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi. If you think back to school and history class, remember the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, That was around a hundred years before Moses' time. 
And most historians would agree that the Code of Hammurabi even isn't the first time that that saying would have been used, just probably the first time we see it in writing. In God's common grace, mankind knew this truth, that the punishment should fit the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. And they'd written it into code with this saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. So then, what was the purpose for this law? Why did God include it in the Old Testament law? And two reasons. One, to prevent further crime. That's kind of obvious, right? When, when people are being punished by the law, uh, by the government for their crimes, that should be, in theory, that should be a deterrent. Making others think twice about doing the same thing or about doing it again once they've received their punishment. And then two, the other side of the coin is this. It was to prevent excessive punishment. To prevent excessive punishment. If people were left to themselves, their own anger, trying to defend their honor, would they stop at a tooth? Would they stop in an eye? Probably not. Especially not in the heat of the moment. Even back in Genesis 4, there's the account of of Lamech. He said this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then after he declared that, he he decided that no one else was allowed to hurt him in response because he could just, you know, say that. That sounds fair, doesn't it? But if left to ourselves in personal vengeance, mankind is not going to be prone to, to have the right kind of mindset to turn off the switch when everything's fair. So this law was given. And the law was to be enforced not by the people who'd been sinned against. It wasn't just a green light as soon as somebody does something for you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It wasn't for them, but for the governing authorities. It was to be overseen by those in the towns who were given these official responsibilities. Uh, So that even if the one who'd been sinned against was part of or enforced in, in, part of or involved in enforcing the law, They would not be doing any of it without the prior consent and without the oversight of the authorities of the government. All of this for the purpose of maintaining justice, for holding back sin, and as a way to prohibit violent retaliation, to prevent angry vengeance. So God took this out of the hands of, of the individual who'd been sinned against and ensured government authorities would see to it that the punishment fit the crime. Does that make sense? So that's what this law was for. Now let's see how the rabbis twisted it up. Uh, So think about this. If the purpose of the law was to ensure that people did not try to take personal vengeance, that they would not retaliate in anger, Guess what these religious leaders had decided that that law gave them permission to do? You might say, um, to take personal vengeance and retaliate in anger? That's right. They thought the law was telling them to do that. It was written to prevent it, and they were using it as a way that God said, you should do this. So you do me wrong, I'll do you wrong. You cross me, I'm coming for you. And I will declare that I am honoring God and being used righteously as his means of judgment in doing so. Aren't I so spiritual? 
You might say the religious leaders didn't exactly twist this command. They just straight up completely flipped it backwards. What God had forbidden, they were pursuing proactively and calling it righteous and good. So now let's see what the spirit of the law always was. Verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you. It's important to remember too in that when he says, I say to you, uh, he being God the Son is certainly in full agreement with God's word. But he's also saying, I am the one who decrees this. So every time he said this, he's also saying, I am the authority. Okay, but I say to you, do not resist. And the word for resist means to be set against or to oppose. Do not resist the one who is evil. And some people stop right here and, and they say this passage is calling us to complete passivism. Just complete, entire passivism. Christians are not to defend for any reason. We're not to fight for any reason. We are not even to resist evil at all. Uh, but that wouldn't be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Uh, we know there were times when God told Israel to go into battle. In the Old Testament, they were, uh, the Israelites were used by God to judge sins of other nations, uh, just as God would later use Assyria and Babylon to judge the sins of Israel and of Judah. Uh, in, defense of, in defense of the holiness of the temple and the glory of God, remember that Jesus, he made a whip. He turned over the money tables, and he drove out a bunch of people who were in sin he drove them out of the temple in Matthew 21. The idea of not resisting evil at all, James 4, 7 says that we are told, we are told in there to resist the devil. In Galatians 2, 11, Peter was being hypocritical. He was acting like this and, and using freedom in, with the Gentile crowd. And then when the Jew, Jewish people showed up, he just changed his whole attitude and his demeanor and the way he was handling things in a way that kind of was derogatory to the Gentiles. And Paul called him out publicly, right in front of the people there. He was resisting evil. In 1 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Timothy 5, instruction is given for calling out sin in the church uh, to fight against evil and to pursue purity as a body. In Romans 13, 4, we're told to obey governing, governing authorities. Remember, at that time, it was Rome still who was the governing authority. And it says that they bear swords as servants of God to punish evildoers, wrongdoers. In, in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, the same thing. It says uh, God sends government leaders to punish those who do evil. And of course, if someone is doing evil and trying to harm you or your family, you are only right to pursue what is right, uh, especially the heads of our households, uh, to protect your families, to help the helpless. It's also right to fight against evil by calling the police, getting the authorities involved for the safety of the people being uh, hurt, sinned against, and to prevent the one doing the wrong from pursuing further sin. When people are doing illegal activity, doing sin, it is a kindness to them to get the authorities involved to restrict them from further sin. That is loving kindness. Nations must defend themselves. The police must protect law-abiding citizens, etc., etc. So if this verse isn't preaching all-out pacifism, which it isn't, what is it saying? Well, to answer that question, we simply need to go back to the point of the original command. 
Because Jesus is teaching the true meaning of the law. So what kind of resisting is Jesus talking about here? Well, the law forbade angry, vengeful, vengeful, personal retaliation. So I should say this. I cannot misuse the law, misuse the law of God, to take matters into my own hands to get revenge after someone has succeeded in sinning against me. Let me say that one more time. I cannot misuse the law of God to take matters into my own hands to get revenge after someone has succeeded in sinning against me. So to help us, and be careful, don't write, that, don't write that as a law right now. Okay, don't do what the Pharisees did. So if I do this, can I do this? And Hold on. What's the heart of this? And to help us understand what the forego, uh, foregoing, that foregoing of personal retaliation might look like, Jesus gives these examples. And it's important to remember, these are examples. Starting in verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, this is not a boxing match, by the way. Okay, this is, this is not referring to a right hook to the face. This would be more in line maybe today with somebody just spitting in your face. This would have been a situation where the person who's messing with you, they're not trying to hurt you physically. They're simply trying to demean you. They're violating your honor. A slap to the face. Uh, But for the Christian, honor? Our identity isn't rooted in what a person or a group of people think about us, is it? What honor are we defending? It doesn't matter what the news agencies or social media think of uh, evangelicals even are. If I want to identify as an evangelical, what they think about us really is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what some people who call themselves evangelical, who probably aren't evangelicals, doesn't matter what they think we are. We know who we are. And more importantly, this might be, uh, it's actually kind of a big statement, but it may not sound like it. We know who we are, but more importantly, God knows who we are. He's the only one who's actually 100% accurate in his knowledge. And our identity is rooted eternally now in Jesus Christ. God has called us his beloved sons and daughters. So Christians, we don't have to worry about our honor, our reputation, here on this earth. Oh, but it's so easy to do it, isn't it? Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Exodus 22, 26 through 27 actually forbids, in the law, forbids the taking of someone's cloak, their outer coat. That's what that was. If you took it, you could only borrow it. And then you had to give it back before the end of the day. Uh, in those times, they used their outer coats, their cloaks, for blankets at night as well. And people would only have one. It wasn't like, it's Thursday, I'm going to wear my Thursday coat today. They had one. So they were not to be taken. Uh, you weren't allowed to do it. But people often had two or three shirts. Okay, they would have two or three shirts. Another one of those, like, boy, we're spoiled. They had two or three shirts. 
uh, or tunics, as it says in this verse. So if you owed a debt, this is what would happen. If you owed a debt and you didn't have any cash to pay it off, but you had a shirt or two, a tunic, you could use that extra shirt to pay off the debt that was allowed. So here's, here's the picture in this example. What would the uh, pharisaical approach, the self-centered approach, have been here? Well, if the law forbids you to take my cloak, well, I got that going for me, so I'm going to borrow more than what my shirt is worth and not intending to pay it back because you can't have my cloak. You see, they're using the system there so they can get for themselves. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's true that you, you don't have to give them your cloak, but you're not to be busy making sure that you get to keep what's yours. You're not uh, busy demanding your rights or learning how to use the system to benefit yourself at the expense of others. Uh, you are going to be more concerned with making things right and doing what it takes, whatever it takes to have a good reputation with everyone. That law was so that other people wouldn't take advantage of you. Make it right with them. Give them your cloak. Don't worry about it. And then verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now this one's talked about maybe more than the others. It's, it is interesting. The Roman Empire at that time, in order to give a break to the soldiers in their travels and their journeys throughout the empire, the Roman law. So now Jesus has left Jewish law and entered into Roman law. The Roman law gave the soldiers permission to call a person out to carry their gear for them, but for no more than a mile. And the Roman mile is a little bit shorter than ours, okay? But no more than a mile. Now, in Rome, like in the city of Rome, I'd imagine if a young man who was, who was a Roman by birth and, and had been asked this, a soldier coming back into the city saying, take my gear a mile, he might have felt honored. He might have been dreaming of the day that one, one day he can be a soldier himself. But in Jerusalem, in a conquered land, especially in Jerusalem, they were not so fond of this rule. These religious leaders hated it. If they were forced to do it, they, they would have been counting the steps, feeling humiliated the whole way, anger welling up inside of them. Can you imagine dreading being seen by other people doing this task? And as soon as they got to that mile, what would they have done? As soon as they got there, drop it all off and I'm out of here, stomping off, snorting, all that kind of stuff as they leave. And what does Jesus say? Without them even asking, you're approaching that mile marker if you're counting your steps. Without them even asking, without even thinking about it, you just keep going. Go two miles. Well, they can't make me do that. Who said make? Just go. Just do it willingly. Serve them. What would a Roman soldier have thought if a Jew had done that? I think, well, man, what are you being so nice to me for? What is this? Everyone else around here hates our guts. What's gotten into you? Where's all your pride? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Verse 42, Jesus says, this next example, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
And the, the idea would be, but this is mine. The money's mine. I worked for this. This house is mine. The land is mine. The food is mine. I don't have to give this to anybody else. I earned this. I worked hard for this. The question, are you able? Are you able to help others in need? To give yourself? You hear the word that's being said over and over? Self? To give yourself for the benefit of others? We need to be willing to give. And just to be clear, our desire is to help people, to benefit them. And sometimes we know this in this world, people continue to ask or, or demand, sometimes even in ways that hurt them, don't they? Unwilling to work, uh, using money for drugs or for alcohol, uh, lying to get away with it, maybe even conning people by de- manipulating their desire to, to hurt and even look good by doing so. When in truth... It's not kind to help a person who's doing that kind of stuff. That's not for their benefit. And sometimes, just the way our hearts can work, uh, we even give to people hoping that it will make us feel good about ourselves. Tick my be good to a person in need box for the year. Uh, When in some situations, it is a greater kindness to not give them money, which would allow them to continue in their sin or in that a deadly habit. How cool would it be if we could help people see their need to repent, to turn to Christ, to get back on their feet afterwards and, and get a good steady job and provide so that they can give, like it says in Ephesians 4. And that would take more of ourselves than just our money, wouldn't it? How cool would that be? Now, the heart in all these examples the heart in all these examples is that I'm not worried about my honor. I'm not worried about my reputation. I'm not using rules to my own advantage or to find the minimum requirements. I'm not looking at my possessions or even my understanding of, of the word in order to hoard things for myself. I have no interest in retaliation because I have no self-interest. So please keep that in mind as we move into example number six. This is the thread that runs through all these verses today. This selfish, self-centered interest. Once we get through these next verses, I'll try to tie it together. Example six, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That might, the alarms might be going off already, right? At the last part of that verse. The obvious thing that ought to jump out of us at the end of this is this faulty command, hate your enemy. Did they really say that? Yeah. And where is it in the Old Testament? Nowhere. Nowhere. Um, Exodus 23, actually, just for example, commanded Israel to take their enemies' animals back to them. If they'd wandered away, if they found them alongside the road or something like that. So you may think, if it's my enemy's sheep, I see it's their sheep, I know it's theirs, I hate that guy, I can just kill it, right? It would be the right thing to do. I mean, no. Take it back. Help them out. Love them. That was one of God's Old Testament law commands. So God, even in the law, gives specific examples of ways they might have been tempted to hate on their enemies and told them to love them anyway. In Psalm 32, David recounts a praying and mourning for the losses of those who had done evil things to him. This was our example to follow. These were the commands to obey. 
But they'd twisted. They'd used these other passages, uh, other passages like battles early on in the promised land to defeat uh, those people and take that land. And, and psalms, imprecatory psalms that are written uh, against the sin of people, wanting judgment to come. They would use these things to justify hatred of people. And then beyond this obvious error of an addition at the end of the verse of hating our enemies, there was also the matter of redefining who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? In Luke 10, we hear that question. That scribe wanting to justify himself, trying to get some clarification. And Jesus tells him about the Good Samaritan, who they would have thought they should hate. And this is because the teaching of the day was that, that only Israelites were our neighbors. Only Israelites. Neighbors, Israelites. Everybody else, enemy. If you weren't the neighbor, guess what you were? (laughs) There wasn't neutral ground. Remember, if hating was the law, if they were learning that hating was the law, which they were teaching, well, then the most spiritual, the most righteous, the best, best of them all would have been the most hateful of all. There's actually evidence in Roman literature that the Roman people, get this, the Roman people considered the Jews, the Jewish people, to be the most hateful of the human race. Imagine that. People who did not know God, calling the people who were supposed to be God's people the greatest haters of humanity. The most hateful people group they'd ever met. When all along, this is what the Lord had required of them. Verse 44. But I say to you, there's that formula, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't hate your enemies. Love them. Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we know that doesn't mean you're like, yeah, he's burning now. No, the burning is conviction. This isn't right. This doesn't feel right. He should hate me. Why doesn't he hate me? And it points them to Jesus. It says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we don't hate our enemies. We love them. We don't hate those who persecute us. We pray for them. Remember, Jesus at the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, Stephen, when he's being stoned, he's about to die. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Does that mean that Jesus and Stephen were really hoping that these guys would really be blessed and be wealthy and go out into the world and continue to sin and keep persecuting and killing more people? Is that what they were praying? Well, no. What kind of prayer are they praying for these persecutors? What should we be praying for them? Well, what's the best thing that could happen? What is the best thing we could pray for people who are persecuting us? How about that they would repent and be saved? That God would shower the same mercy and grace on them that he did on us. Remember that? When God saved this helpless and lost sinner? Remember when he saved you? What would we be if it wasn't for the grace of God? We don't glory and rejoice in the death and damnation of sinners. We grieve the losses of even our most 
hateful opponents, as David did in Psalm 32. But what we should want is their repentance, their salvation, forgiveness, and changed lives. So we pray toward that end and eagerly hope to be used by God to point them to Jesus for rescue. And in doing so, then we see verse 45. That kind of a perspective, that kind of a love, that kind of an action to those who are at enmity with us looks like verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father, being like our dad, who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. Sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then this challenge, if you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing uh, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A couple important things to point out here. First, the Jewish religious leaders have been busy uh, at hating their enemies and declaring that they were loving their neighbors, even though they were actually more interested in themselves and how they could twist and manipulate the law in order to obtain what they had come to believe were their rights. They might even say, yeah, I'm doing things against you. They wouldn't say that, but they would be doing things against somebody in what they thought was obedience to the law and therefore justifying it as love. All kinds of twisted up, right? For what we believe to be our rights. And what has Jesus just said about them now in verses 46 and 47? But you know who the religious leaders hated? Tax collectors and Gentiles. Tax collectors were Jews who had decided to work for the Roman Empire to take money from Jews to give to Rome and then take a little extra put in their own pockets. And if you think these Jewish leaders didn't like carrying Roman soldiers' gear for a mile, try taking their money. And it's really amazing that these Jewish leaders, they, they hated Gentiles so much, seeing that the law always required Israel to welcome in the sojourner and the exile. God in the law tells Israel to welcome these people in, to treat them well. God had told them to expect people to come and to join the nation of Israel by faith. It wasn't supposed to be just an ethnic racial thing. And, and these, these Jewish leaders would have revered the story of Ruth, for example. King David's great-grandma, who was a Moabite a Moabitess Gentile woman. But, you know, those, those pagan Gentiles, they're good for nothing, right? Unclean, pagan, they're misfits who don't deserve any good thing from a Jew. Our enemies, who we are to hate. That's what they thought. That's what they taught. Uh, there are rabbinical teachings that have been found where, where the Jews were being taught that if they should happen upon a Gentile drowning in the water, to just leave them to die. Remember, the Romans called the Jews the most hateful people in the world. And Jesus has just told this crowd that these hated tax collectors and Gentiles did just as good, if not a better job, of treating other people well or poorly as the Jewish religious leaders did. Jesus has just said in verses 46 and 47, the scribes and the Pharisees are no better than the tax collectors and Gentiles. They might not have liked that very much. 
I probably didn't like that, but it was true. Remember this, things aren't true or false because we like or dislike them. We need to make sure that we learn from this as well because we can be just as prone to fall into this pattern. It's so easy to like people who like us, to give attention to people who give attention to us. Uh, Like a teenager who has a crush on someone for no other reason than because that other teenager has a crush on them. They have something really important in common. They're really into me, just like I am. We go about fishing for friends who have the same interests, the same hobbies, the same values, the same everything, and who make us feel just great about ourselves. And we tend to ignore people, maybe even mock people, just because they have different interests and different hobbies and different values, and and just maybe because they don't make us feel great about ourselves. Cardinal sin. And the fear of that disconnect or that lack of expected affirmation, it drives us away. But our number one goal in life is not to be affirmed. That's how the world operates. God has called us to something far more than that. We didn't affirm God when Jesus died for us. God has become our father. And he expects his kids to grow up to be like him. Remember verse 45 says that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And verse 48 Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is where we need to take that big step back. Where we'll find, we'll find that common thread that goes through both of these examples, these verses today. Things like turning their cheek, uh, loving our enemies. It's the same root issue that will either enable us to grow in this or keep us from growing. And, and remember, we're not in neutral or growing, or sinning. There's not a, you're either for me or against me, right? We need to rid ourselves of this self-interest, self-centered, might even call it what the world calls it, self-esteeming mindset and philosophy. It's the idea of self. Identity. And we know this, the world is all about identity. Identity. What do I identify as? We even use that in politics now. What do I identify as? And our identity is super important. But God is the one who gives us our identity. We don't make it ourselves. God is the potter. I am the clay. God isn't great because he thinks I'm great. He's great because he's great. God isn't gracious and merciful to me because he looked forward in the corridors of history and found me to be awesome. If that's how that worked, I wouldn't need grace and mercy. Jesus didn't die on the cross thinking about how awesome and glorious I am. Jesus is awesome and glorious. God is awesome and glorious. Therefore, he has showered his grace on hopeless, lost sinners like me. Uh, The Beatitudes tell me who I am. On my own, in my own right, I am poor, impoverished. I have no righteousness to bring to the table in myself. I had reason to mourn over my condition. I I have reason to be meek, to wholly rely on Christ for my rescue, to be ready to be wholly surrendered to his lordship. And in that knowledge, in the rescue of Christ, I'm now free 
and freed from myself, free from my sin. And I can now hunger and thirst for true righteousness, which only the righteous and holy one has the ability and the right to define. Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Only the one who is perfectly good and right. Well, that's only God. So we are in a place where we need to listen to him. And God is the one who is making us who we will become. Philippians 1, six, we see that God is the one who is committed to finish the work in us, to make us just like Christ, so all glory goes to him. We, we know this. We live in a culture of self-esteem, self-interest, where we get to decide who we are, who we're going to be, uh, down to the very essence of our, pers- our personhood. We live in a culture that tells us to speak our truth, to manifest our own reality. And we have a Savior who really died to pay the real penalty of the very real wrath of God. We have really been bought with a very great real price, so we truly are not our own. And we can have true joy in following a true, good, holy God. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, you know why I, Andy Molyneux, or put your name in there. You know why Andy Molyneux can turn the other cheek? Because when Jesus died, Andy Molyneux died. There is no honor to defend. If you slap my cheek, you're, you're slapping a cheek that belongs to God anyways. And he'll make it right, one way or another. And it'll be the right way. So that's not of my concern. And the same righteous, holy God who loved me unconditionally can save you too. And so we would say to somebody, please let me introduce you to the Savior of the world. So as we close today, let me just read to you these passages of Scripture. I'm just going to read these, these four passages that teach us who we are, what Christ has done, what our model is to follow. And then I'll pray. Romans 6, 5 through 11. If we've been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And that's our life too. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And of course, I got to read Romans 5, 8 in here. Who, who loved me when? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that gives us the great example of Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see we, it's so easy for us to have a mentality of searching for joy and searching for happiness just in, in relief from all of the chaos in the world and the chaos even in our own hearts and minds. To think that we're going to find joy by elevating ourselves or being elevated by others. God, help us to see and realize that that's kind of like a short-term drug that it never truly satisfies. But it's awfully addicting. And God, help us uh, to see Jesus, to look to Jesus. It's so easy for us to look to ourselves and how we relate and how we think and, and what you think about us and, and what other people think about us and how I need to better myself and God, I pray that we would look to Jesus. See him for all he is. See his beauty. See his love. See his sacrifice. See his humility. See his glory. And that, God, we would rest in him. Knowing that uh, we have died. That we live in Christ. That you've freed us from that bondage that you have given us an inheritance in Christ, that you've given us eternal life, that you've given us a purpose, eternal purpose, that you've given us joy and freedom, that you've given us yourself. God, I pray that in these truths we would, we would enjoy this, that we would rejoice in the Lord always, that we would look at other people as, as sinners who are in need of a Savior, that we wouldn't look at ourselves as better or worse than anybody else, but that we would acknowledge that you are overall and know that you've, you've purchased us, that we are yours, that we have been freed from our bondage to sin and self and freed to love all of these people, whether we happen to like them or not. God, use us for their good. May we love people in the same way that you've loved us that all glory would be yours. And God, we thank you that in this, we have peace and rest and joy. And we pray this all, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.